0: Welcome to the Council of Institutional Investors podcast on corporate governance and financial regulation. I'm Jeff Mahoney, the General Counsel of CII. The purpose of these monthly episodes is to update CII members and the general public on developments in corporate governance and related CII advocacy activities in connection with the administration's initiative to reform the U.S. financial regulatory system. This update covers the period from February 6th to February 28th. So, let's start with the U.S. Congress. On February 6th, the House Committee on Financial Services Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigations held a hearing examining the prevalence and impact of fraudulent comment letters on proposed federal financial regulations. The hearing follows Securities and Exchange Commission Chair Jay Clayton's November 5th statement in support of his agency's proposed rules for proxy advice and shareholder proposals, in which he cited numerous letters the SEC had received from, quote, long-term Main Street investors, unquote, including an Army veteran, a Marine veteran, a police officer, and a retired teacher. Bloomberg News later reported that some of the letters referenced by Chairman Clayton were, quote, astroturf, unquote, or letters ginned up by pro-corporate advocacy groups. A subcommittee memo for the hearing defines astroturfing as a means to create a false impression of a widespread, spontaneously arising grassroots movement in support of or in opposition to something. Currently, no federal regulations directly address the submission of fraudulent comments in the rulemaking process. Large-scale astroturfing operations have become more prevalent recently with comments flooding the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, and the Federal Communications Commission. Bartlett Naylor, a financial policy advocate for public citizen who testified at the subcommittee hearing, proposed stricter enforcement of laws that penalize those who knowingly and willingly make fraudulent representations of federal government. He also encouraged federal agencies report fraudulent activity to the FBI. Mr. Naylor referred to a Senate investigation that found that only one agency in 12 had contacted the FBI about a suspected fraudulent activity. Turning now to the administration, on February 10th, the White House released its fiscal year 2021 budget proposal which, among other provisions, envisions funding the SEC at $1.894 billion, or $79 million more than fiscal year 2020, and eliminating the SEC's reserve fund established under Dodd-Frank. A budget proposal would also consolidate the authorities and responsibilities of the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, or PCAOB, into the SEC beginning in 2022. With respect to the PCAOB provision, the proposed budget projects $580 million in savings through 2030 if the PCAOB is consolidated into the SEC. The proposal states that, quote, the SEC is already charged with investigating federal securities law violations and has the authority to impose disciplinary action, including for public accounting firms that are also overseen by the PCAOB. Consolidating these functions within the SEC will reduce Regulatory ambiguity and duplicative statutory authorities, unquote. Of note, the SEC appoints the PCOB members, it approves its budget, and must sign off on any PCOB audit standard changes. Public companies and registered broker dealers pay support fees that fund the PCOB and its operations. The PCOB is not funded by taxpayer dollars. In 2020, the PCOB is working with an operating budget of $284.7 million. CI strongly supported provisions in the Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002 that created the PCOB as an independent private sector oversight and standard-setting body for the audit profession. The PCOB's functions include inspecting audits rather than letting audit firms grade their own work. CI's membership-approved policies support independent accounting and auditing standard-setters. We believe the independence of the PCOB is critical to ensuring high-quality audits and reliable financial information that meets investor needs and strengthens confidence in the markets. Let's now move to recent activities of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. On February 10th, the SEC's Fixed Income Market Structure Advisory Committee, or FIMSAC, met to discuss issues related to fixed income markets, including growing concerns about credit rating agencies. The FIMSAC Subcommittee on Credit Rating Agencies, chaired by Colorado Para-CIO Amy McGarrity, published a discussion document shortly before the meeting outlining alternatives to address conflicts of interest in the credit rating agency industry. Credit rating agencies largely operate on an issuer pay model in which the agencies rate the bonds of the entities that pay them for the ratings. In a practice known as ratings shopping, companies may approach multiple ratings agencies for a deal and choose the rating that is most favorable. This creates an inherent conflict of interest. Credit rating agencies are tasked with accurately rating a company's products, while also competing with other agencies to be hired by the company. The FIMSAC document discusses using a system whereby the SEC would create an oversight body to randomly select two nationally recognized statistical rating organizations, or NRSROs, to rate structured finance and corporate bond deals. The FIMSAC subcommittee members also discussed the possibility of creating a performance scorecard for the SEC to analyze NRSROs. They also discussed making it easier to assign ratings and increasing disclosure requirements for both NRSROs and for companies issuing bonds and seeking an NRSRO rating. Several SEC commissioners have indicated that ensuring quality credit ratings remains an important objective for the agency. Speaking at a previous FIMSAC meeting, SEC Chair Jay Clayton identified this area as important for consideration. An outgoing SEC Commissioner Robert Jackson said he was "quote concerned that credit rating agencies lack the necessary incentives to produce reliable, unbiased ratings for systematically important markets." Unquote. On February 11, CII wrote to the SEC to support an investor's exchange or. IEX proposal that would seek to level the playing field on displayed orders. The IEX had proposed a discretionary limit or delimit order type to protect long-term institutional investors against latency arbitrage strategies of rapid traders. Delimit uses a crumbling quote indicator to automatically reprice a displayed order to avoid trading during brief moments of vulnerability. This indicator is on for 0.02% of the trading day on a volume-weighted basis. But 24% of all IEX-displayed trading happens in these moments, indicating sophisticated traders take advantage when prices are changing. CI's letter states, quote, We believe D-Limit is well-tailored to increase diversity and depth of displayed liquidity by protecting investors from getting picked off by fast traders at key moments. Our support for D-Limit is rooted in our interest in market innovation that actually protects the interests of long-term investors, including our members and their beneficiaries, unquote. Our letter specifically disputed a request from the Securities Industry and Financial Markets Association, or SIFMA, that a D-Limit order should not qualify as a protected quote under securities law. In response to that argument, our letter states: quote, we believe it makes no sense to define as protected only quotes that provide investors no protection against speed trading strategies, unquote. We also cite a letter from T. Rowe Price to refute the Cifma suggestion. Other useful letters that have been submitted on this topic are from HAO and Themis Trading, among others. The proposed delimit order and other market structure issues will be discussed at CII's Spring Conference in a breakout session scheduled for March 10th at 2.15 p.m. Also, on February 11th, CII sent a letter to the SEC commenting on the Commission's proposed rule on investment advisor advertisements. Our letter expresses some concern that the breadth of the proposed definition of advertisement, along with the narrowness of the exception from the definition for unsolicited investor requests, could reduce the flow of information to institutional investors. The letter indicates that some of the SEC's assumptions underlying the proposed rules bifurcation of clients and investors into retail persons and non-retail persons may, one, overestimate the effectiveness of resources of non-retail persons, particularly in their relationship to private fund advisors. Two, underestimate the difficulty even institutional investors can have in obtaining information on fees, expenses, performance data, material conflicts of interest, and other information necessary to effectively analyze investments in private equity funds, and three, not reflect prior SEC enforcement actions against some of the largest and most prominent private fund advisors for inadequate disclosure and transparency. On February 13th, CI filed two more common letters criticizing the SEC's proposed rules for proxy advisory firms. The first letter was a follow-on to our letter of February 4th that analyzed corporate claims of factual errors in proxy advisors' reports and concluded they were unfounded and misleading. In the follow-on letter, CII posed a series of questions for the SEC to consider if it plans to produce a rigorous economic analysis of the proposed rule. The second letter was signed by CII and representatives of twelve institutional investor members, including Wellington Management and Aberdeen Standard Investments. That letter specifically challenges the SEC proposal to require proxy advisors to give companies an opportunity to pre-review proxy advisor reports before they are delivered to the proxy firm's paying investor clients. The letter states in part that the resulting delay will, quote, make thoughtful voting much more difficult or impossible and likely add substantial costs that are not reflected in the SEC's cost-benefit analysis, unquote. On February 14th, Valentine's Day, the SEC issued a proposal that would update and modernize the rules governing the collection, consolidation, and dissemination of information regarding quotations for and transactions in National Market System, or NMS, stocks. Noting that it preliminarily believes that the content of NMS market data and the model for collecting, consolidating, and disseminating NMS market data have not kept pace with technological and market developments, the Commission proposes to update and expand the content of NMS market data to include information related to, one, orders in sizes smaller than the current round lot size for certain higher-priced stocks, two, certain orders that are outside of the best bid and best offer, and three, orders that are participating in opening, closing, and other auctions. The SEC notes that the proposal would build upon and complement its January 2020 proposed governance order by seeking to modernize NMS market data from both a content and access perspective, including by introducing competitive forces to key components of the system for the first time. Comments on the proposal will be due 60 days following its publication in the Federal Register. On February 19th, SEC Chairman Jay Clayton together with the Director of the Division of Corporation Finance, the Chief Accountant, and the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board Chairman, William Dunkey, issued a statement regarding their continued dialogue with senior representatives of the four largest U.S. audit firms concerning audit quality in China, as well as reporting considerations and potential relief related to the current and potential effects of the coronavirus. Those meetings occurred over the last several weeks, and served as a follow-up to a series of meetings in November 2019 at which commission officials communicated their expectation that U.S. audit firms bring appropriate increased attention and resources to their internal and cross-network quality control processes as the PCOB continues to be prevented from inspecting the audit work and practices of pcaob registered audit firms in China on a comparable basis to other non-U.S. jurisdictions. Specifically, the recent meetings addressed, among other topics, acceptance and retention policies, independent internal and cross-network review processes, training, benchmarking, and the anticipated and potential effects of the 2019 novel coronavirus. The officials noted that they expect to have similar meetings with other U.S. audit firms that, although through use of their own networks or otherwise, audit U.S.-listed companies with significant operations in emerging markets, including China. With respect to the potential exposure of companies to the effects of the coronavirus and the impact that exposure could have on financial disclosures and audit quality, the statement acknowledges that this remains a dynamic situation where the effects on any particular company may be difficult to assess or predict. The statement stresses, however, that how users plan and respond to the events as they unfold can be material to an investment decision, and they urge users to work with their audit committees and auditors to ensure that their financial reporting, auditing, and review processes are as robust as practicable in light of the circumstances in meeting the applicable requirements. The statement noted that in their meetings with audit firms, they specifically emphasized one the need to consider potential disclosure of subsequent events in the notes to financial statements, and two, the SEC's general policy to provide appropriate relief from filing deadlines in situations where filings cannot be completed on time with appropriate review and attention in light of the circumstances beyond the control of the issuer. Accordingly, the statement notes that relief may be made available on a case-by-case basis or broader basis as the circumstances merit and encourage issuers and their advisors to contact SEC staff regarding any need for relief or guidance. As an aside, PCOB Chairman William Dunkey is expected to comment on this statement and other PCOB-related issues when he's interviewed by Hillary Flynn of Wellington Management Company at CII's Spring Conference on March 10th. On February 20th, CII submitted a comment letter to the SEC opposing the Commission's January 2020 proposed governance order I referenced earlier that would have the stock exchanges and the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority submit a new National Market System Plan for consolidated equity market data. In our letter, we indicated we cannot support the proposal in part because it does not sufficiently improve the governance structure of the Securities Information Processors, or SIPs. In our letter, we recommended that the SEC consider the following improvements to the governance structure of the proposed operating committee for SIPs. Having the Commission appoint the members of the operating committee, ensuring that the operating committee has at least a majority of non-self-regulatory members, having at least two representatives from institutional investors, including at least one representative from a public pension plan on the operating committee, and giving each member of the operating committee equal voting power, requiring that the committee's decisions be approved by a supermajority of its members, and adopting a fair and transparent conflict of interest policy for the operating committee members that requires disclosure and recusals to ensure that on an ongoing basis, the conflicts of interest of the committee members are identified, fully disclosed, and appropriately managed. Also on February 20th, CII filed a fifth comment letter on the SEC's proposed rules for proxy advisors. This letter focuses specifically on the incentive for companies to file proxy materials at an earlier date as the SEC proposed in its December rulemaking release. Our letter states that the commission failed to consider the facts about when companies actually file proxy materials when it drafted the management pre-review provisions in the rule proposal and the damaging consequences those provisions would create for proxy voting. Our letter notes that the proposed rule would provide proxy analysis, review, and feedback, final notice, and hyperlink privileges only to companies that file proxy statements at least 25 days before the shareholder meeting and would offer an extended review period for those that file at least 45 days before the shareholder meeting. Our letter analyzed data from Broadridge and found an overwhelming majority of companies already file their proxy statements from 40 to 48 days before their annual meetings. Given that companies already file earlier, the SEC's incentive to companies to gain an extra two business days to review proxy research appears unlikely to have any sniffing impact. Our letter states, quote, logic suggests that the extra two-day review period incentive is weak tea, unlikely to persuade many companies to make extra efforts to file any earlier, unquote. Moreover, we believe that if the SEC proceeds with its plans to allow these manager pre-reviews, the actual delay for investors in receiving reports would be at least 8 to 11 calendar days, significantly reducing the time for investor clients to evaluate the reports and consider proxy votes. As we indicated in the letter, we believe that delay will damage the processes that institutional investors currently have in place to cast their votes in a considered manner. A letter also cites a study finding that the proxy reports produced by institutional shareholder services off-season, when its staff can devote more time to analysis of company disclosures, are of higher quality. Our letter warns, quote, the SEC should take heed of the Hippocratic Oath. First, do no harm. If the amendments aggregate the problem of compressed time for proxy voting decision-making in the spring proxy season, it will damage corporate governance in the United States, unquote. A letter also notes that while CII opposes the proposed rules in their entirety, if the SEC does proceed with the pre-review requirement as proposed, the letter recommends that the commission create a more limited two-business-day review and feedback period for data only with the draft information also provided concurrently to clients and with the requirement that such a right be provided only to a company that publishes proxy materials at least 50 days before a shareholder meeting. Finally, on February 27th, yours truly spoke at the SEC's Investor Advisory Committee meeting on a panel that focused on accounting and auditing trends. In my remarks, I noted that CI membership-approved policies support the view that accurate and reliable audited financial reports are critical to making informed investment decisions, and the primary role of those reports should be to satisfy investor information needs. I also highlighted the findings of a December CII Research and Education Fund report on Critical Audit Matters, or CAM, reporting. That report notes that this past year marked the first time in which some public company auditors were required to disclose any matter arising from a company's financial statements that one was communicated to the audit committee, two, relates to accounts or disclosures that are material to a company's financial statements, and three, involved especially challenging subjective or complex auditor judgment. The CIRF report found that while auditors were generally doing a good job in implementing the CAM requirements, the report also noted that many of the CAMs that have been issued to date failed to discuss the outcome or key observations of the auditor in performing the audit procedures related to the CAM. The omission of that information is significant and disappointing because a description of the outcome of the audit procedures or key observations in connection with the CAMS were the very types of information that had been requested by investors and CII during the development of the PCOB standard that resulted in the CAMS requirements. Finally, I expressed uh, CI's continued support for the standard and encouraged the PCOB to continue to approve CAM disclosures to help investors better understand the outcome of the audit process. In response to a question from a member of the IAC about auditor rotation, I discussed CI policies that outline best practices for audit committees to ensure auditor independence. Also, in response to a question from a member of the IAC about the White House's recent budget proposal to consolidate the PCOB into the SEC, I again referenced CII policies that support the view that investors benefit from having the PCOB be an independent private sector body. Many IAC members and panelists also express concern over the White House's budget proposal with respect to the PCOB. That completes my corporate governance and financial regulation update. If you have any questions regarding any of the issues discussed, uh, please feel free to email me at jeff, j e f f, at cii.org, or give me a call at 202 822 0800. Till next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.